I feel greatly honored at being invited to bear testimony regarding my acquaintance and relationship with the leadership of the Church during the past nearly 65 years. The major part of my life has been devoted to association with prophets of the living God. It was in February 1922 that I became the secretary to the president of the Church, President Heber J. Grant, and I continued in that position until he passed away in 1945. During the administrations of his successors, George Albert Smith, David O. McKay, Joseph Fielding Smith, and Harold B. Lee, I was secretary to the First Presidency, and I have served as general authority since 18, uh, 1970 with Presidents Joseph Fielding Smith, Harold B. Lee, Spencer W. Kimball, and Ezra Taft Benson. Over these years, over the years, these men have been sustained by the Church as prophets, seers, and revelators. Whenever the prophet has been, the gospel has been on earth, there have been prophets of God, men holding the priesthood of God, through whom the Lord has made known His will. What a glorious blessing it has been! to serve with prophets and their associates. I think of the general authorities today. I can testify to you that they are truly men of God. When we meet in the quorum and other meetings with these brethren, the Spirit of the Lord is there in rich measure. Particularly is this the case when we meet in the temple. What about the prophet Joseph Smith? Do you believe that he was a prophet? I want to testify that he was perhaps the greatest prophet who ever lived, except, of course, the Savior of the world. He gave the world a knowledge of the true and living God. Through Joseph the Lord introduced this, the greatest of all dispensations, the dispensation of the fullness of times. John the Baptist restored the keys of the Aaronic priesthood, and Peter, James, and John restored the keys of the Melchizedek priesthood. Joseph saw the Father and the Son, and, and at the dedication of the Kirtland Temple, Moses, Elias, and Elijah appeared to him and restored to him the keys of former dispensations. This is the last dispensation, a time of preparation for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in glory, his second coming. There were given to Joseph Smith the keys for carrying the message of life and salvation to the living and the dead. The following is an excerpt from Joseph Smith's letter written in 1842 to Mr. John Wentworth of Chicago. No unhallowed hand can stop this work from progressing. Persecutions may rage, mobs may combine, armies may assemble, calmly may defame, but the truth of God will go forth boldly, nobly, and independent. 
till it has penetrated every continent, visited every clime, swept every country, and sounded in every ear, till the purposes of God shall be accomplished, and the great Jehovah shall say, The work is done. Those who have succeeded the prophet Joseph Smith have been given these same keys that I have mentioned. Each of these brethren of the general authorities has been called of God by prophecy and by the laying on of hands by those who are in authority to preach the gospel and administer in the ordinances thereof. They are set apart from all other men upon this earth. They are authorized by ordination to do things that no other man upon this earth can do. President Lee said upon one occasion that just as the waters are purest at the mountain source, the purest word of God and the least apt to be polluted is that which comes from the lips of the living prophets who are set up to guide Israel in our own day and time. What a great prophet is our present president, Ezra Taft Benson, who with his counselors, the Council of the Twelve, other general authorities, and other inspired leadership is directing the work of God under inspiration and revelation from the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our Savior and Redeemer. It's been my good fortune and blessing to have become somewhat acquainted with all the presidents of the Church. It, it has been uh, during my association with President Grant, we did much traveling together. On occasion, going by train to New York and other places which required our being together in a drawing room on the train, normally for several days at a time. President Grant became an apostle in the days of John Taylor, who was with the Prophet Joseph in Carthage, in the Carthage jail at the time of the Prophet Joseph's martyrdom. President Grant knew Brigham Young, Parley P. Pratt, Orson Pratt, Wilfred Woodruff, Lorenzo Snow, and others who served as apostles during the leadership of the Prophet Joseph. Brother Grant retold to me on various occasions the testimonies and experiences of those great men regarding the Prophet Joseph, also the manifestations they personally enjoyed. It was also my privilege to have in my custody the records of the General Authority Council meetings held in the temple, which later council meetings I recorded during my many years as secretary. Yes, I have known all these brethren in a very real sense. The Savior, in praying to our Heavenly Father just before his crucifixion, said, This is life eternal, that they might know thee the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. These brethren to whom I have referred know God, and Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. I know that God lives, that Jesus is the Christ, and these brethren whom I have mentioned were and are true prophets of the living God and have served and do serve under the direction of the Lord, who is the true head of the Church. I say this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.
My beloved brethren, this night as I look out over this great body of priesthood holders and think of the similar congregations throughout the world, I am stirred with a great sense of gratitude and joy and blessings to our Heavenly Father for which He has given us the privilege of holding the priesthood, which is the power and authority to act in God's name, is a great blessing and privilege, and one that carries with it equally great obligations and responsibilities. When I ponder what kind of men and boys we should be as priesthood holders, I cannot help but think of the Savior's questions to the Nephite Twelve when he asked, Therefore, what manner of men ought ye to be? Verily I say unto you, even as I am. To be like the Savior, what a challenge for any person. He is a member of the Godhead. He is the Savior and Redeemer. He was perfect in every aspect of his life. There was no flaw nor failing in him. Is it possible for us as priesthood holders to be even as he is? The answer is yes. Not only can we, but that is our charge, our responsibility. He would not give us that commandment if he did not mean for us to do it. The Apostle Peter spoke of the process by which a person can be made a partaker of the divine nature. This is important, for if we truly become partakers of the divine nature, we shall become like him. Let us examine closely what Peter teaches us about this process. Here is what he said, and beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness and to brotherly kindness, charity. The virtues outlined by Peter are part of the divine nature, are the Savior's character. These are the virtues we are to emulate if we would be more like him. Let us discuss a few of these important traits 
first characteristic to which all others are added is faith. Faith in the foundation upon which a godlike character is built. It is a prerequisite of all other virtues. When I think of how we show faith, I cannot help but think of the example of my own father. I recall vividly how the spirit of missionary work came into my life. I was about 13 years of age when my father received a call to go on a mission. It was during an epidemic in our little community of Whitney, Idaho. Parents were encouraged to go to sacrament meeting, but the children were to remain home to avoid contracting the disease. Father and mother went to sacrament meeting in a one-horse buggy. At the close of the meeting, the storekeeper opened the store just long enough for the farmers to get their mail. Since the post office was in the store, there were no purchases, but in this way the farmers saved a trip to the post office on Monday. There was no RFD in those days. As father drove the horse homeward, mother opened the mail, and to their surprise, there was a letter from Box B in Salt Lake City, a call to go on a mission. No one asked if one were ready, willing, or able. The bishop was supposed to know, and the bishop was Grandfather George T. Benson, my father's father. <laughs> As father and mother drove into the yard, they were both crying, something we had never seen in our family. We gathered around the buggy. There were seven of us then, and asked them what was the matter. They said, everything's fine. Why are you crying? Come into the living room and we'll explain. We gathered around the old sofa in the living room and father told us about his mission call. Then mother said, we're proud to know that father, father's considered worthy to go on a mission. We're crying a bit because it means two years of separation. You know, your father and I have never been separated more than two nights at a time since our marriage. And that's when father has gone into the canyon to get logs, posts, and firewood. And so father went on his mission, though at the time I did not fully comprehend the depths of my father's commitment. I understand better now that this 
that his willingness to accept of the call was evidence of his great faith. Every holder of the priesthood, whether young or old, should strive to develop that same faith. Peter goes on to say that we must add to our faith virtue. A priesthood holder is virtuous. Virtuous behavior implies that he has pure thoughts and clean actions. He will not lust in his heart or to do so for to do so is to deny the faith and to lose the spirit. And there is nothing more important in this work than the spirit. You've heard me say that many times. He will not commit adultery nor do anything like unto it. This means fornication, homosexual behavior, self-abuse, child molestation, and any other sexual perversion. This means that a young man will honor young women and treat them with respect. He would never do anything that would deprive them of that which, in Moroni's words, is the most dear and precious above all things, which is virtue and chastity. Virtue is akin to holiness, an attribute of godliness. A priesthood holder should actively seek for that which is virtuous and lovely and not which is debasing or sordid. Virtue will garnish his thoughts unceasingly. How can a man indulge himself in evils of pornography, profanity, or vulgarity and consider himself totally virtuous? Whenever a, a priesthood holder departs from the path of virtue in any form or expression, he loses the spirit and comes under Satan's power. He then receives the wages of him whom he has chosen to serve. As a result, sometimes the church must take disciplinary action, for we cannot condone nor pardon unvirtuous, unrepentant acts. All priesthood holders must be morally clean to be worthy to bear the authority of Jesus Christ. The next step Peter describes is the growth process, is to add knowledge to our faith and virtue. The Lord has told us that it is impossible for a man to be saved in ignorance. In another place, God commanded, Seek ye out of the best books, words of wisdom, seek learning, even by study and also by faith. Every priesthood holder should make learning a lifetime pursuit. 
While any study of truth is of value, truths of salvation are the most important truths any person, any person can learn. The Lord's question, for what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul, can be applied to educational pursuits as well as the pursuit of worldly goods. The Lord might also have asked, for what is it profited a man if he shall learn everything in the world and not learn how he can be saved. We must balance our secular learning with spiritual learning. Young men, you young men should be as earnest in enrolling in seminary and learning the scriptures as you are in working toward high school graduation. Young adults enrolled in universities and colleges or other post-secondary training should avail themselves of the opportunity to take Institute of Religion courses or, if attending a church school, take at least one religion course each quarter. Joining our spiritual education to our secular will help to keep focused. We will help us to keep focused on the things that matter most in life. Though I am speaking to you priesthood holders, the same admonition applies to the women as well as the men. President Spencer W. Kimball said in this way, Youth, beloved youth, can you see why we must let spiritual training take first place? Why we must pray with faith and protect and perfect our own lives like the Savior's? Can you see that the spiritual knowledge may be complemented with the secular in this life and on for eternities, but that secular without the foundation of the spiritual is but like the foam on the milk, the fleeting shadow. Can you see that the ordinances of the temple are more important than the Ph.D. or any and all other academic degrees? When your formal education has been completed, we, we should continue to make daily study of the scriptures a lifetime pursuit. What I said last April to priesthood leaders applies to every priesthood holder as well tonight. I add my voice to these wise and inspired brethren that you have heard tonight. I thank God for their counsel. Search them diligently.
feast upon the words of Christ. I learn the doctrine. Learn the doctrine. Master the principles that are found therein. Few other efforts will bring greater dividends to your calling. Few other ways will result in greater inspiration. You must see that studying and searching the scriptures is not a burden laid upon you by the Lord, but a marvelous blessing and opportunity. Another attribute described by Peter as being part of the divine nature is temperance. A priesthood holder is temperate. This means he is restrained in his emotions and verbal expressions. He does things in moderation and is not given to overindulgence. In a word, he has self-control. He is the master of his emotions, not the other way around. A priesthood holder who would curse his wife, abuse her with words or actions, or do the same to one of his own children, is guilty of grievous sin. Can ye be angry and not sin? Asked the Apostle Peter, the Apostle Paul. If a man does not control his temper, it is a sad admission that he is not in the control of his thoughts. He then becomes a victim of his own passions and emotions, which lead him to action that are totally unfit for civilized behavior, let alone behavior for a priesthood holder. President David O. McKay once said, a man who cannot control his temper is not very likely to control his passion. And no matter what his pretensions in religion, he moves daily, moves in daily life very close to the animal plane. To our temperance, we are to add patience. A priesthood holder is to be patient. Patience is another form of self-control. It is the ability to postpone gratification and to bridle one's passions. In his relationship with loved ones, a patient man does not engage in impetuous behavior, but he will later, that he will later regret. A patient man is understanding of the other's faults. A patient man who waits on the Lord. We sometimes read or hear of people who seek a blessing from the Lord, then grow impatient when it does not come swiftly. Part of the divine nature is to trust in the Lord enough to be still and know that he is God. 
A priesthood holder who is patient will be tolerant of the mistakes and failings of his loved ones. Because he loves them, he will not find fault or criticize them or blame. Another attribute mentioned by Peter is kindness. A priesthood holder is kind. One who is kind is sympathetic and gentle with others. He is considerate of others' feelings and courteous in his behavior. He has a helpful nature. Kindness pardons others, weaknesses and faults. Kindness is extended to all, to the aged and the young, to animals, to those low in station, as well as high. These are the true attributes of the divine nature. Can you see how we become more and more Christ-like as we are more virtuous, more kind, more patient, and more in control of our emotional feelings? The Apostle Paul used some vivid expressions to illustrate that a member of the Church must be different from the world. He commanded us to put on Christ, put off the old man, and put on the new man. The final and crowning virtue of the divine character is charity, or the pure love of Christ. If we truly seek to be more to be more like our Savior and Master, then learning to love as He loves should be our highest goal. Mormon called charity the greatest of all. The world today speaks a great deal about love, and it is sought for by many. But the pure love of Christ differs greatly from what the world thinks of love. Charity never seeks selfish gratification. The pure love of Christ seeks only the eternal growth and joy of others. When I think again, when I again think of my father, and that day he was called on his mission, I suppose some in the world might say that his acceptance of that call was proof he did not love his family. To leave seven children and an expectant wife at home alone for two years, how could that be true love? But my father knew a greater vision of love. He knew that all things shall work for the good of them who love God. He knew that the best thing he could do for his family was to obey God. 
While we missed him greatly during those years, and while his absence brought many challenges to our family, his acceptance proved to be a gift of charity. Father went on his mission, leaving mother at home with seven children. The eighth was born four months after he arrived in the field. But there came into that home a spirit of missionary work that never left it. It was not without some sacrifice. Father had to sell the old dry farm in order to finance his mission. He had to move a married couple into part of our home to take care of the row crops. And he left his sons and wife the responsibility for the hayland, the pasture land, and a small herd of dairy cows. Father's letters were indeed a blessing to our family. To us children, they seemed to come from halfway around the world, but they were only in Springfield, Massachusetts, and Chicago, Illinois, and Cedar Rapids and Marshalltown, Iowa. Yes, there came into our home as a result of Father's mission, a spirit of missionary work that never left it. Later, the family grew to 11 children, seven sons and four daughters. All seven sons filled missions, some of them two or three missions. Later, two daughters and their husbands filled two two full-time missions, and two sisters, both widows, one the mother of eight and the other the mother of ten, served as missionary companions in Birmingham, England. It is a legacy that still continues to bless the Benson family, even into the third and fourth generations. Was not this truly a gift of love? This is what the Savior means when he speaks of the kind of men we should be. Does not his own life reflect perfect diligence, perfect faith, perfect virtue? If we are to be like him, we too must become partakers of the divine nature. The Savior declared that life eternal is to know the only true God and his Son, Jesus Christ. If this is true, and I bear you my solemn witness that it is true, then we must ask how we come to know God. The process of adding one godly attribute to another, as described by Peter, becomes a key to gaining this knowledge that leads to eternal life. Note Peter's promise, which immediately follows the process described. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you, 
that ye shall neither be barren or unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. O oh, my beloved brethren, I pray that these qualities and attributes of the Savior may abound in us so that when we stand at the judgment and be asked, each one of us, what manner of man are ye? We can raise our heads in gratitude and joy and answer, even as thou art. This is my humble prayer for each and every priesthood holder. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. amen. Now, brethren, I would like to read to you a statement recently approved by the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve. In harmony with the needs of the growth of the Church across the world, the First Presidency and Council of the Twelve Apostles have given prayerful consideration to the role of Stake Seventies quorums in the Church and have determined to take the following action relative thereto. One, the Seventies quorums in the Stakes of the Church are to be discontinued, and the Brethren now serving as Seventies in these quorums will be asked to return to membership in the elders' quorums of their wards. Stake presidents, in an orderly fashion, may then determine who among such brethren should be ordained to the office of high priest. This change does not affect the first quorum of 70, members of which are all general authorities of the Church. Two particular emphasis is to be given to stake missions to cooperating with the full-time proselyting missionaries by finding, friendshipping, fellowshipping, and fostering member participation in all missionary activities. A missionary-minded elder or high priest will be called as the stake mission president, with his counselors being selected from among the elders or high priests. Additional detailed instructions regarding this announcement will be provided local priesthood leaders by letter from the First Presidency. At this time, we commend all who have served, both past and present, as members of Stake Seventies Quorums of the Church, and who have so ably given of their time, talents, and resources in spreading forth the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you, my brethren. Peace be with you.
the Lord bless you. We feel that this is appropriate in the interest of the farther and farther growth of the church and kingdom of God. The presence of you many boys here tonight has brought to mind a statement I read just the other day. A man said, The only substitute for experience is being 16. <laughs> I'm grateful for the men of experience and I'm grateful for the boys of 16 and all of the other ages who are represented here tonight. I noted in the public press the other day that the war between Iran and Iraq has gone on for seven years. No one can ever estimate the terrible suffering incident to that conflict. Lives numbered in the tens of thousands have been lost. The terrible wounds of war have left bodies maimed and minds destroyed. Families have been left without fathers. Little boys who have been recruited as soldiers have died in many instances while those yet alive have had woven into the very fabric of their natures elements of hatred which will never leave them. The treasure of the involved nations has been wasted and will never be recovered. To us who look upon it from afar, it seems so unnecessary and such a terrible waste of human life and national resources. Seven years is a long time. Will it ever end, we ask? But there is another war that has gone on since before the world was created and which is likely to continue for a long time yet to come. John the Revelator speaks of that struggle. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels and prevailed not. Neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. That war, so bitter, so intense, has gone on and it has never ceased. It is the war between truth and error, between free agency and compulsion, between the followers of Christ and those who have denied him. His enemies have used every stratagem in that conflict. They've indulged in lying and deceit. They've employed money and wealth. They've tricked the minds of men. They've murdered and destroyed and engaged in every other unholy and impure practice to thwart the work of Christ. It began in the earth when Cain slew Abel. The Old Testament is replete with accounts of the same eternal struggle. It found expression in the vile accusations against the man of Galilee, the Christ who healed the sick and lifted men's hearts and hopes. He who taught the gospel of peace. His enemies, motivated by that evil power, seized him, tortured him, 
nailed him to the cross and spoke in mockery against him. But by the power of his godhood, he overcame the death his enemies had inflicted and through his sacrifice brought salvation from death to all men. That eternal war went on in the decay of the work he established, in the corruption which later infected it, when darkness covered the earth and gross darkness the people. But the forces of God could not be vanquished. The light of Christ touched the heart of a man here and a man there, and vast good came to pass notwithstanding much of oppression and suffering. There came a time of renaissance with struggles for liberty, struggles for which much of blood and sacrifice were paid. The Spirit of God moved upon men to found a nation wherein freedom of worship and freedom of expression and freedom of agency were protected. There followed then the opening of the dispensation of the fullness of times with a visit to earth of God the Eternal Father and his beloved Son, the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. This glorious event was followed by visits of angels, restoring the ancient keys and priesthood. But the war was not over. It was renewed and redirected. There was contempt. There was persecution. There were drivings from one place to another. There was the murder of the young prophet of God and of his beloved brother. Our people fled their homes, their comfortable homes, their farms, their fields, their shops, their beautiful temple, built at such tremendous sacrifice. They came to these valleys, thousands of them dying along the way. They came, as President Brigham Young said, to establish a place where the devil can't come and dig us out. But the adversaries never stopped trying. Ninety years ago, in the October Conference of 1896, President Wilford Woodruff, then an aged man, standing where I stand in this tabernacle, said, There are two powers on the earth, and in the midst of the inhabitants of the earth, the power of God and the power of the devil. In our history, we've had some very peculiar experiences. When God has had a people on the earth, it matters not in what age. Lucifer, the son of the morning and the millions of fallen spirits that were cast out of heaven, have warred against God, against Christ, against the work of God, and against the people of God. And they are not backward in doing it in our day and generation. Whenever the Lord sets his hand to perform any work, those powers labored to overthrow it. President Woodruff knew whereof he spoke. He had then only recently passed through those difficult and perilous days when the government of the nation had come against our people determined to destroy them. The buildings on this temple square, this tabernacle in which we meet tonight, and the temple then under construction, were cheated to the federal government. Many citizens were disfranchised. But in faith they moved forward. They kept going. They put their trust in the Almighty. And he revealed unto them the path they should follow. 
In faith, they accepted that revelation and walked in obedience. But the war did not end. It abated somewhat, and we're grateful for that. Nonetheless, the adversary of truth has continued his struggle. Notwithstanding the present strength of the Church, it seems that we are constantly under attack from one quarter or another. But we go on. We must go on. We've gone forward, and we will continue to go forward. In some seasons, the issues are major. At other times, they're only local skirmishes, but they're all part of a pattern. In a few days, we'll dedicate the beautiful Denver Temple. When it was announced that we would build a temple in that city and selected a site on which it should stand, opposition rose against us. We gave up that site and tried another. Again, we were thwarted. But we were determined to go forward, putting our trust in the Lord, that He would guide us in accomplishing His purposes. Two other possible sites were selected. At the time, President Kimball and President Romney were both ill, and mine was a serious responsibility. I asked President Benson, then President of the Council of the Twelve, if we might go to Denver together. And there, with Brother Russell Taylor, we looked over these sites. I give you my testimony. We were guided by the Spirit in choosing the ground on which that beautiful new structure now stands. It will be dedicated later this month as a house of God. We might expect that the adversary of righteousness would seek to thwart its construction and the work to be done therein. He had done so in the days of Kirtland, when enemies threatened to push over the walls which were then being laid. He did so in the days of Far West, when enemies drove our people from the state of Missouri. It was so in Nauvoo, where the temple had barely been completed when we were driven out. It was so here, on this temple square, when during the forty years of the temple construction there was one threat after another. I could describe problems in other places where today stand or will stand beautiful houses of the Lord. Opposition has not come only in the construction of temples. It has been felt in the undying efforts of many, both within and without the Church, to destroy faith, to belittle, to demean, to bear false witness, to tempt and allure and induce our people to practices inconsistent with the teachings and standards of this the work of God. Brethren, the war goes on. It is as it was in the beginning. There may not be the intensity, and I am grateful for that. But the principles at issue are the same. The victims who fall are as precious as those who have fallen in the past. It is an ongoing battle. We of the priesthood are all part of the army of the Lord. We must be united. An army that is disorganized will not be victorious. It is imperative that we close ranks, that we march together as one. We cannot have division among us and expect victory. We cannot have disloyalty and expect unity. We cannot be unclean and expect the help of the Almighty. You boys who are here, you deacons, teachers, and priests are all a part of this. 
the Lord has laid upon you in your priesthood offices the duty to preach the gospel, to teach the truth, to encourage the weak to be strong, to invite all to come unto Christ. You cannot afford to partake of things that will weaken your minds and your bodies. These include marijuana, cocaine, crack, alcohol, tobacco. You cannot be involved in immoral activity. You cannot do these things and be valiant as warriors in the cause of the Lord in the great everlasting contest that goes on for the souls of our Father's children. You men of the Melchizedek priesthood, you cannot be unfaithful or untrue to your wives, to your families, to your priesthood responsibilities if you are to be valiant in moving the work of the Lord forward in this great battle for truth and salvation. You cannot be dishonest and unscrupulous in your business affairs without tarnishing your armor. In our meetings, we occasionally sing an old hymn, Who's on the Lord's side who? Now is the time to show. We ask it fearlessly, Who's on the Lord's side who? We wage no common war, cope with no common foe. The enemy's awake. Who's on the Lord's side who? I had a letter from a friend in the East the other day. He spoke of a conversation he had with another member of the Church. He had asked his associate whether he felt close to his Heavenly Father. He replied that he did not feel close. Why not? He said, candidly, because I don't want to. Then he went on to say, if I were close to Heavenly Father, he would probably want some commitment from me. And I'm not ready for that. Think of it. A man who has taken upon himself the name of the Lord in baptism. A man who has renewed his covenants with the Lord in his sacrament meetings. A man who has accepted the priesthood of God and yet has said that if he were close to his Heavenly Father, some commitment might be expected of him, and he was not ready for that. In this work, there must be commitment. There must be devotion. We're engaged in a great eternal struggle that concerns the very souls of the sons and daughters of God. We are not losing. We are winning. We will continue to win if we will be faithful and true. We can do it. We must do it. We will do it. There is nothing the Lord has asked of us that in faith we cannot accomplish. I think of the children of Israel when they fled Egypt. They camped beside the Red Sea. Looking back, they saw Pharaoh and his armies coming to destroy them. Fear gripped their hearts. With the armies behind them and the sea before them, they cried out in terror. And Moses said unto the people, Fear ye not, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord which he will show to you today. For the Egyptians whom ye have seen today, ye shall see them again no more forever. The Lord shall fight for you, and ye shall hold your peace. And the Lord said unto Moses, Speak unto the children of Israel that they go forward. The sea parted and the children of Israel moved to their salvation. The Egyptians followed to their own destruction. 
shall we not also in faith move forward? He who is our eternal leader, the Lord Jesus Christ, has challenged us in words of revelation. Said he, Wherefore lift up your hearts and rejoice, and gird up your loins, and take upon you my whole armor, that you may be able to withstand the evil day. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, which I have sent mine angels to commit unto you, taking the shield of faith wherever ye, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, and take the helmet of salvation and the shorts sword of my faith, my spirit, and be faithful until I come, and ye shall not be caught up, that where I am ye shall be caught up, that where I am ye shall be also. The war goes on. It is waged across the world over the issues of agency and compulsion. It is waged by an army of missionaries over the issues of truth and error. It is waged in our own lives day in and day out, in our homes, in our work, in our school associations. It is waged over questions of love and respect, of loyalty and fidelity, of obedience and integrity. We are all involved in it, men and boys, each of us. We are winning, and the future never looked brighter. God bless us, my beloved brethren of the priesthood, in the work that is so clearly laid out before us. May we be faithful. May we be valiant. May we have the courage to be true to the trust God has placed in each of us. May we be unafraid. For to quote the words of Paul to Timothy, God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. amen. We have just listened to Elder Joseph Anderson of the First Quorum of the Seventy. President Benson has invited me to say a few words on this occasion at this time in the program. As I came into the tabernacle this evening, I could see in a moment that the priesthood of God had filled the tabernacle to overflowing, had entered into the assembly hall south of the tabernacle, and filled buildings ranging in size from the gigantic Marriott Center of Brigham Young University to the smallest hall situated many miles distant from Salt Lake City. I realize, brethren of the priesthood, that you have assembled to be edified, to be uplifted, to be inspired. And as I contemplate my responsibility in this regard, only one word describes it. It comes from the vocabulary of my nine-year-old granddaughter, and that word is awesome. I pray for the help of our Heavenly Father, for your faith, and for that noble attribute of courage. For I know, brethren, that courage counts.
I learned this to my satisfaction some 31 years ago. I was serving as a bishop. We were holding our state conference in the assembly hall to the south. President Joseph Fielding Smith was our visitor, then president of the Council of the Twelve. Our state presidency was to be reorganized that day. The Aaronic Priesthood provided the music in a special Aaronic Priesthood chorus. I suppose Aaronic Priesthood choruses today are very much like Aaronic Priesthood choruses were then, comprised of the Stake Aaronic Priesthood Committee, all bishops in the stake, all bishops' counselors, all advisors to Aaronic Priesthood quorums, and as many deacons, teachers, and priests as you could rope and hold to sing in a chorus for a morning session of state conference. We had just completed singing our first number when President Smith stepped to the pulpit and read the names of the new stake presidency. I'm convinced that the other two brethren in the presidency knew in advance of their appointment. I did not. The first I knew of my appointment as a member of the stake presidency was when President Smith announced to the people my name. He then said, If Brother Monson will accept this appointment, we'll hear from him now. <laughs> I left the lofty position in the choir seats of the assembly hall and made my way to the pulpit. As I stood there, there flowed through my mind the title of the song our Aaronic Priesthood Chorus had just rendered. It had to do with the word of wisdom, and the title was, Have Courage, My Boy, to Say No. <laughs> I used as my theme that morning, Have Courage, My Boy, to Say Yes. Brethren, as we journey along through life, our journey is not undertaken on a freeway, devoid of obstacles and pitfalls and snares. Our journey is more like a pathway with forks and turnings, constant decisions to make. To make those decisions wisely, brethren, we must have the courage to say yes, the courage to say no, for the decisions we make will surely determine our destiny. Courage is a constant requirement, ever needed. We see it frequently on the battlefields of war, and some of the deeds are recorded on the printed pages of books or recorded on rolls of film. Some are even recorded indelibly impressed on the human heart. One account of courage from the military was written by a young infantryman. He was wearing the gray uniform of the Confederacy in the great American Civil War. He, in his own words, described the courage of his general. He said, at a critical point in the battle, General Jeb Stuart leaped his horse over the breastworks near my company. He made his way to the center of the brigade. The men were cheering wildly, 
And then General Stewart said to us, pointing to the enemy, forward men, forward, just follow me. The men were wild with enthusiasm. Their hearts were filled with courage and resolution. They overflowed the breastworks like a raging torrent and followed General Stewart, and the objective was taken and held. Many centuries before that time, and far distant from America, another leader issued this same invitation, follow me. He was not a general of war, rather he was the prince of peace, the son of God, the Holy One of Israel. Those who had the courage to follow him then, and those who have the courage to follow him now, win a victory far more significant and with consequences more everlasting than we could imagine. But courage is constantly required. The Holy Scriptures are replete with evidences of courage. One I like and admire is the courage of Joseph, son of Jacob, the same who was sold into Egypt. Remember when he was tempted by Potiphar's wife and she attempted to seduce him? Do you remember his words, How can I do this great wickedness? and sin against God, and he hearkened not unto her and got out. I heard a father give this same advice to his son in our day. He said, Son, if you ever find yourself where you shouldn't ought to be, get out. That's good advice for boys. It's good advice for fathers of boys. If you ever find yourself where you shouldn't ought to be, get out. I think of the courage of Daniel. Daniel, who was ordered to cease praying to his God under threat of death. He didn't knuckle under, but he trusted in God with all his heart. And he prayed to God. And our Heavenly Father protected and watched over him. He had courage. I think of the courage of Abinadi from the Book of Mormon, who was willing to offer his life rather than to deny the truth. And who can help but thrill to the courage of the 2,000 stripling sons of Helaman? They had the courage to obey their parents, the courage to remain true and chaste. Maybe all of them were inspired by the courage of Moroni, who endured in righteousness unto the end. And I kind of think that each one knew something about the words of Moses, who said, Be strong and of a good courage. Fear not, for the Lord thy God, he it is that doth go with thee. He will not fail thee nor forsake thee. He did not fail them, he will not fail us. He did not forsake them, he will not forsake us. I think it was this knowledge that gave Columbus, the mighty explorer, the courage day after day as he sailed the Atlantic to write in his ship's log, 
This day we sailed on. Perhaps it was this knowledge that prompted the Prophet Joseph to declare, I am going like a lamb to the slaughter, but I am calm as a summer morning. It is this knowledge that will provide you and me the courage for our day, for our time, and for our lives. Oh, of course we'll have fear. We'll face ridicule. It has always been so, and it will ever be so. Brethren of the priesthood of God, let's have the courage to defy the consensus. Let's have the courage to stand for principle. Courage, not compromise, brings forth the smile of God's approval. And courage is a living and an attractive virtue when it is regarded not only as a willingness to die manfully, but the ability and the desire to live decently. A moral coward is one who is afraid to do that which he knows is right because someone else might laugh or ridicule. Let us remember that all men have their fears, but those who face them with dignity have courage as well. May I share with you from my personal chronology of courage two brief examples, one from the military, one from missionary service. Like you, I was once 17, going on 18. The great World War II was in progress at that time. And in the closing months of that war, I enlisted in the United States Navy. I had never been away from home before. In the Navy, I saw acts of courage and deeds of valor. But I remember one simple act of courage that has stayed with me through the years. It was personified by a young seaman, not of our faith, who every night the only one of 250 men in the company would kneel down by the side of his bunk and, amidst the mocking and the laughter of some shipmates, would offer his prayer to his Heavenly Father aloud on bended knee. He never faltered. He never failed. He had courage, and I remember that courage. Missionary work has always called for courage. And when I think of a courageous missionary, a young man with whom I've become well acquainted comes to mind. His name is Randall Ellsworth. Years ago, as a missionary in Guatemala, he was severely injured by that tremendous earthquake that struck that nation. A huge beam was hurled down, rendering his legs paralyzed and damaging his kidneys. His life was despaired of. He was airlifted for emergency help at Panama City, and then to Maryland at his home. He entered a hospital for that long period of therapy and recuperation. Randall Ellsworth was somewhat of a national hero. He was the only American injured in the quake, which took 18,000 lives. Through the miracle of television, 
Sister Monson and I watched an interview between a newscaster and Randall Ellsworth. The newscaster said, Randall, you are the only American who was injured in the great earthquake. I note that you are unable to walk. Do you think you will ever walk again? I thought to myself, what a cruel question. And then Randall said, the doctors think I won't walk again, but I feel I will. Then the newscaster, do you think you will ever complete your mission? Oh, many people think not, but I will. Finally, you've received a letter, Randall, from the President of the United States. What do you think of that letter? Oh, I'm very grateful, he said, to receive such a letter. But I also received a letter from the President of my Church, and with him praying for me, and with the prayers of my family, my mission president, my fellow missionaries, I'll walk again, and I'll return to Guatemala to complete my mission. I thought, what courage! Then the endless weeks of therapy, 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 punctuated by pain, 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 and exemplified by courage, courage, courage. Then finally, a little sensation in his toes. Then eventually, a little more sensation in his feet and his legs. At long last, Randall Ellsworth could stand. And after more therapy and more courage, with the help of two canes, he walked aboard the plane that took him back to the people he loved and to the land he cherished. He left behind a trail of doubters and those who were skeptics, but he also left behind hundreds who were witnesses of the miracle of God and the power of faith and the example of courage. But Randall Ellsworth's test was not yet over. When he was in Guatemala meeting one day with his mission president, the President said to him, Elder Ellsworth, you've been the recipient of a miracle. If one, why not two? You surely don't want to go through life leaning on those two canes. If you've got the faith and if you have the courage, why don't you put those canes on my desk and walk? There was a long pause. Silence prevailed in the room, and then the sound of one cane on the table, then the sound of the second cane, and a young missionary turned and walked from the room, never again to use the hated canes. Now some years have gone by. Randall Ellsworth is married in the temple. He and his sweet wife have two children. And just a few months ago, I received a letter which reminded me of him. Let me share it with you tonight. The President and Directors of Georgetown University, the Faculty of Medicine, and the Class of 1986 announced the commencement exercises of Georgetown University School of Medicine. And then the date is given. Our missionary, Randall Ellsworth, received his Doctor of Medicine degree. More study, more pain, more faith, more courage. He paid the price. 
he won the victory. My dear brethren, my prayer tonight is that every one of us will have courage, that we may have courage at the crossroads, courage for the conflict, courage to say no, courage to say yes. For I testify, testify from the bottom of my heart and from the conviction of my soul that courage counts. May we have it. I ask in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. amen. The choir and congregation will now join in singing High on the Mountain Top, following which President Gordon B. Hinckley, First Counselor in the First Presidency, will speak to us.